Welcome back to The Francisca Show, where we encourage fellow artists and entrepreneurs to collaborate and support each other while sharing their stories. I'm Francisca, a singer, composer, music producer, and also your host. Hey you, thanks for coming back and listening to the show. And if it's your first time, welcome to The Francisca Show podcast. I'd like to share uh, one of our fan mails. This one is in writing, and I really wanted to share that with you. Quote, I listen to most of your shows, and I love listening. They're so positive and upbeat all the time. I like that you're open to sharing many topics like this, which are super important, and people are usually reluctant to share, especially in the firm communities. But that's what makes it unique and enjoyable to listen to. Keep going, Francisca. End quote. Thank you. Also, I've heard that uh, podcasters or artists in general struggle a lot with putting themselves out there, which is the whole idea of what we're doing. And at the same time, we're so dependent on the feedback because that's how we're measured in a way. So thank you so much for coming back to the show. And without any further ado, today we have Simcha Liner. Here is your show. Welcome back to the Francisca Show and to any of our new listeners, if it's your first time, welcome to this podcast. Usually on the show, we interview Jewish women in the arts and entertainment. However, I did decide to branch out and to deliver real high quality and real time information on the music and show business. Why not go to the source and instead of assuming things about the mainstream music industry, let's just get the information from the stars out there. So our first male representative in the Jewish music business, we have gotten Simcha Liner on the show, and it's such an honor and pleasure to have you here. So welcome. Thank you so much. Well, when you put it in that perspective, it's really a, an honor to join you. <laughs> I'm happy you feel this way. So we'll start the way we usually do. I'd like to hear from you. We'd all like to hear from you how you got started, where did the passion for singing and music begin, and how did that transition from hobby to professional to pro? Sure. So um, I guess my uh, music career would be best looked at in stages. So the first stage of my career, if you would uh, put it that way, um, started out when I was in pre-bar mitzvah age, so 11, 12 years old. I was studying voice and nusach um, basically, the art of davening, as you can put it that way, um, at Yeshiva University in Washington Heights um, with the late Sherwood Goffin, who would later be uh, my mentor and uh, someone that I was very close with until his passing last year. That was At that time, I was the youngest graduate of Yeshiva University. I think it still is to this day. The, the record, you know, the youngest graduate I graduated at uh, a week before my bar mitzvah. So I was 12. Wow. But even at that time, I was never singing publicly. It was just an extracurricular activity type of thing that my parents, rightfully so, noticed that I didn't have as much, uh, as they say, zitzfleisch. You know, I, could, I couldn't sit as still as some of the other people in my class. So they um, looked for a, a, a productive hobby, I guess, for me. Um, and that was the, the start of, uh, you know, that, uh, that leg of my, my journey. So just basically fast forward uh, a few years, um, 
And after my bar mitzvah, my voice began to change, you know, as I was uh, maturing. Um, so I took a, I guess, five-year, four or five-year break, hiatus, something like that, to safely allow my voice to change. That was my, my, my childhood, you know, my musical, um, the, the extent of my musical career as a kid. I didn't really sing uh, publicly much. Right. But you had lessons. Right. I trained in, in voice and nasach. Nice. And you enjoyed it, or was this forced onto you? It was definitely not forced onto me. My parents encouraged it. Um, and I see now that I'm a parent, as I'm you know, a parent now to three kids, that encouragement and forcing are, very, are two very different things. Um, and sometimes you just need to encourage past that point of, of you know, discomfort when you start enjoying things. Um, so the, every, there's always going to be that, you know, kalas, kalas, kashas point that um, you have to get used to things. Especially in my case, I was doing things that most people um, around me, and in fact, when I was going to classes, uh, most people around me were college age. So it was weird. It was off-putting uncomfortable, you know, something like that. But I ultimately came to enjoy it even more because I found myself doing things that if, if this is not really done for, you know, until you're 20 or 21, then wow, maybe I'm, maybe I am good at something. And that was very uh, encouraging and it was great for my self-esteem at the time. Well, that's nice to hear. So after your four or five year break, right. you introduce music back into your life. What does that look like? I started dipping my toes into the world of chazanas, um, the cantorial world, because that's really all I knew what, you know, knew how to do. That was the background I had, the training I had. Um, and I, through a series of events, um, started davening in shuls in, in New York City, um, particularly as a like chazan sheni. So I would fill in for some of the bigger chazanim and even some of the bigger name chazanim today that, that many people know of, like Health God and Zevi Muller and these type of names. Um, when they were off, um, I would uh, take them over for very, very, very small amounts of money, as you can imagine. It was, I, I, there was, no one knew who I was. Um, I would sleep on the shul benches sometimes, sometimes in the rabbi's offices. Like th this was, you know, what, what we call today hustling. You know, it was it was the grind. I really started from absolutely nothing. And eventually, some shuls were seeing bigger crowds on the weeks that I was filling in um, over the weeks that, you know, the actual hired chazan was there. So this naturally be it became more of uh, people started to hear your name and hear you lead the prayers and the services, and then you got more gigs and opportunities from that. Right. So people today are looking for that vi virality, I guess you can say, that shoot to fame overnight, that look for, you know, uh, it, and it's, it's, it is the new norm, but the healthy way to do it was to go out there and build up a fan base, build up a, you know, a, a recognition, and more importantly, build up relationships and there are people today that I consider some of my closest clients slash friends, which anyone in the music business knows is a very interesting, um, you know, relationship. Uh, clients, yeah. that, right? The dynamic of a relationship is very unique. 
um, many of these relationships came from these days, from these days that we were just discussing. Right. Um, so fast forward a little bit. I was in uh, yeshiva in Nair Yisrael, studying under a, a certain Rebbe named Rebbe Kosman. Um, For anyone listening who, out there, that's my father-in-law. <laughs> that's right. And um, I was in the Nair Yisrael dormitory. At the time, I became a dorm counselor, um, strictly and selfishly because the dorm counselors get a private room. And I knew that um, I could never record music unless I had a private room. So and it's, it's funny to point out that I ended up excelling at being a dorm counselor and thriving you know, as a dorm counselor. And uh, a lot of you know, boys that I've uh, spent time with as a dorm counselor, I've kept up with them and to this day um, have a great relationship with so many of the, the, the high school students that I was a dorm counselor. Um, but at the time I recorded you know, random stuff in my dorm room there were actually quite a few guys in yeshiva at the time that went on to be doing some very fascinating jobs, including Avrami Berkowitz was there with me, who's now one of uh, Donald Trump's, I, I guess, senior advisors. But at the time, I recorded a call Barama in my dorm room in the, the high school yeshiva dorm building. So what did that look like? You had your own equipment? Right. I had a, a actually a pretty big setup because no one would walk into that room. It was a locked room. I knew that I could get away with uh, you know, a proper setup. I had the first iMac that came out at the time, um, you know, that flat screen iMac, the, the first one after that huge computer. They, they downs- Apple downsized it for the first time. Um, I had like basic bare-bone recording equipment, but it worked. And you know, it was the ultimate proof that like, it's not about what you have. It's about what you do with the stuff that you do have. You know, it's, people are always chasing the gear. And we, I had like the, the absolute cheapest basic recording equipment. And that's how we recorded Kalbarama, which ultimately was the song that launched my, uh, my career. And who is we when you say we? So <laughs> I always say we, but it, I usually mean me. Um, I do that as well. <laughs> I did have... I had help with the song. Um, the song was written, co-written with by Arya Groman, who was in Yeshiva with me, and to this day is very much involved in my music career. Um, we co-wrote the song together, so that was a, a pretty much a, a straight up we. But in general, when I, you know when I'm saying we, it's a, I don't know, it doesn't feel right to say you know me. I hear that. I identify with that. When you say you co-wrote, did you arrange the 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 words or to compose also and produce i don't enjoy composing much so i don't find myself doing it as much as i should um in that case he wrote a chord progression that i recorded a melody over and then we refined it to the point of the final product but today um my last album which was released about a week and a half ago two weeks ago called kalakavod was completely self-produced um, it was my first album that I produced from start to finish. So this was a, a big deal for me. And it was produced at like the highest level, you know, the Philharmonic Orchestra on the slow songs and the top, you know, digital producers on the fast songs and just a, a, a real labor of love. Wow. 
Okay, I would like to say sounds a lot like my journey right now. I also started off with hiring out a lot, and now I have a studio in my own home, and I'm self-producing my next album. That's amazing. So I understand this journey, and there's a, a deeper connection with the work because you've been so much more involved in every little bit. Okay, so let's just hear a little bit about how the music industry works. I'm sure there's, there's lots of competition and... After we talk about the competition, what the industry looks like, I'd like to talk about the money end of it and what's expected, what's the norm, what's available out there. Ultimately, the biggest question is how big is big in the Jewish industry? So we'll be leading into that direction. And we'll start from wherever you feel is relevant. Okay. Sure. So in terms of competition, I'm going to quote um, A.B. Rottenberg. Uh, A.B. Rottenberg says, it's not about how hot the bread is when it comes out of the oven. It's how warm it stays. Nice. So what, he's, what he was trying to say is that it's not about at the moment who is the, you know, the hottest artist on the scene. It's about who sticks around, who the Avram Fried is going to be in 20 years. You know? Avram Fried has been consistently successful for about 30 years now. And it's not necessarily because of his songs, which are amazing. It's not necessarily because of his voice, which is amazing. It's not necessarily because of his stage presence, which is amazing. It's about the total package, and it's about what he brought to the music scene. And uh, he's a, a good example, I guess, of what I'd like to uh, model my, you know, my, my 10-year plan after. And so what is the package? The package is the person, the voice, the songs, and the performance. You know, there, there has to be the right balance of all of that. But all of this, at the end of the day, as a God-fearing Jew, we all um, we ultimately believe that no matter how talented you are, no matter how successful you are, um, mazel plays into everything. And, and the, the amount of stories in every production that I can detail that, you know, the hashkacha pratis, the divine intervention that goes into uh, productions are, are apparent. And luckily they're apparent because it keeps that motivation going that, you know, sometimes you're in a position where like, why am I even doing this? And then you just remember that there, there you're, it's however much you're trying, however much you're doing, there is ultimately a, another force at play. Um, so that's great for perspective. It's great for looking at things from a broader picture. Um, but, you know, hishtadlus, you know, doing your, your input into um, you have to try as, as hard as you can, as, as work as much as you can. Um, Take, take opportunities when they present themselves and just know that there's only so much that's in your hands. So. And don't you think also being consistent and just doing the grind and keep doing it year after year, I think that is the difference probably between Avram Fried and other artists out there. It's not that the people shut him down, shut them down. It's that they just keep putting new work out there and they keep putting their face out there. And they're still around because they're still doing right. the work. Most people just right. quit. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, a something that if there are any artists, you know, out there listening to this, which I'm sure there are, yourself included, it's not always about the what I consider marquee productions. So there are. I put out an album two weeks ago called Kolakavod, arguably my best work. I, I'd like to believe it's my best work. And hopefully there's something on there that'll, you know, propel the, my career for the next couple of years that, until the next production comes out. But it's the projects that you put out in between that sometimes can take you even farther. So I'll give you an example. Um, the song 
there are two songs that I've released about a year and a half ago were adaptations of The Greatest Showman. Um, I called it The Greatest Chuppah. And those songs cost me $4 to make and about $30 to license the track, something like that. And that brought in those two songs, those silly you know, cover songs, as you'd say, brought in more work and brought in more attention than you know, the $100,000 production that was put out a few months prior to that. So you just have to think of things on a greater scale um, and not be afraid to keep throwing stuff out there. You know, if things hit the wall, chances are something's going to stick. But you never know what it is. So there are people that have these, you know, you see these people putting out these $20,000 music videos when sometimes if it's a good song and a good concept, you know, I had the song Ribono that we put out a music video um, in November or uh, we put it out in February of last year. Um, that video is of me playing piano on the beach, you know, by sunrise. And then we moved the piano to the forest and this and that. It's a very, very simple concept because the song is good enough that it sell, it, the song will sell the video. Um, it was a pain in the neck getting a piano onto a beach. It was January. It was four degrees outside, you know, but you look past that stuff and it's ultimately the product that you're putting out that, that matters most. Right. Well, in general, covers do better very often for artists with original work because the covers are so much easier to listen to because people already are familiar with the music. True, 100%. Um, but if you're covering something, a lot of people are covering something very niche. Like, I'll hear a song, you know, I'm a big uh, fan of some of uh, Hanan Ben-Ari's work or Yushay Riva, some of these Israeli artists that are incredibly talented and I'm blown away by the musicality and then I cover it and put it out in America where people's you know uh, their palette is much more pop based or, or simplistic and they're like what is this and I'm like you don't see how brilliant this is you know the music that they... so it's not about what you necessarily think is amazing it's about what people find themselves enjoying and the ultimate key here is that you don't know what it is so you have to keep experimenting and, and, and doing your market research by trial and error and, uh, you know, pray that you find something that, 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 that sticks. So I'm curious when you talk about these $20,000 music videos, which I'm sure you've done and I'm sure your productions have cost a lot of money. Do you just invest because you believe in the product in the song and you're just going to do whatever you can to make it as best as it can be and then worry about making the money back after I'm sure it's different in the mainstream music industry as opposed to the Kolisha market just because there's very little purchasing of Kolisha music to begin with. Is there any ROI, return on investment, thought that goes into when you plan your project? Sure. Okay, so I, 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 have, a, I have a master's in finance um, and it's, music was not what I had intended to do full time. Um, and the first year that I got married, I laid out a plan with my wife, who has an incredible voice too, by the way, and we, we've recorded some stuff together. Didn't see the light of day necessarily. Um, I think it's on the, you can find it on the dark web, but it's, uh, not readily available. But I, I basically laid out a plan with her that I would pursue a mainstream job in finance, um, as well as singing. And we did this for a year. Um, and whichever one would be more lucrative, that would be the one I would pursue full time. So it's important to note that 
I have a very extensive background in finance slash money management. And the most important thing I tell artists, you know, people say, why are you putting out albums? They don't make any money. Right. And you should know about five years ago when I was putting out albums that that statement was blatantly wrong. Um, today, it's not so wrong anymore um, with streaming. The album sales have plummeted. Um, like beyond that you can imagine add that add in the fact that most cars today don't even have a cd player most homes don't have a cd player so you're definitely not selling physical copies itunes has been manipulating their source there it's even worse than that if you put out a link to itunes they'll automatically redirect it to apple music so if your album is not on apple music yet because you wanted to reserve the opportunity for people to listen to the album just by purchasing it, not by streaming it, it'll bounce back as an unfound item, an item that's not on the store, which even though it is. So it's very frustrating right now. It's a point where, you know, we do wait a few, officially a couple months to put out the album onto Spotify and Apple Music and Google Play. Um, but something that I used to tell people when they said that statement was, if you're not making money from albums, find an alternative source to promote yourself. Work on a, you know, a lower priced ver a video. There's so much that you can do today. The iPhone shoots 4K. You can make an unbelievable video. I think a recent, a, a non, a secular pop star put out a music video shot on an iPhone. There's no excuse anymore to not put out content. Money is not, an, is not a, a roadblock anymore. Um, you can borrow someone's laptop and a mic and a, interface and record incredibly high quality music for nothing there's no excuse anymore like that it used to be you have to take out a manhattan studio at 350 400 an hour to record we still do that in the high-end world but it's you know because we're dealing with a different clientele a different market but i didn't start that way i started recording everything for free in my dorm room making the videos for free and um that being said every production that we do now has a you know a budget and that budget doesn't come from you know thin air there's a reason for the budget and uh there has to be a direct roi on everything we do so it sounds like that's more lucrative than having a job in finance and which is a good sign i'm sure it wasn't always like that but today i'm just curious when you give out your price and quote, do people negotiate with you or do they say, okay? There's different ways to approach pricing. It's very important to look at the market around you. Look at your competitive advantages versus disadvantages. What You have to be very honest with, with yourself. What can you do that other people can't? And what could they do that you can't? And using that sort of formula, develop where your price should be. There are two types of people. There are people that ultimately they want to make X amount um, and are fine with working twice a month at half of that number to get there. Or there are people that are a little bit more motivated, I guess. So they'd rather work at a lesser price more often to reach that number um, because ultimately, in my belief, ultimately you're going to reach more people book more by being seen more um 
at the same time, you have to always be conscious of not overexposing yourself. Um, so there is a balance that you have to find. And um, I am pretty confident that most people, when they call me, already know what my price is going to be before they, they ask. Um, there are people that call and ask my number, ask my price, you know, or ask me or ask someone that is, is, is you know, managing the booking. And they'll ask a question like, does that include the whole band? You know, when they hear the number for just my performance fee. Um, and right away, you know that those people um, didn't, you know, speak to people around them or educate themselves on the industry before they made that phone call, which is totally fine and totally acceptable. Um, and to those calls, I usually, instead of just, you know, uh, shrugging it off, I'll say there's some amazing talent in the business at significantly lower prices. Let me make some suggestions for you. Because you never know ultimately when this person might come around and, you know, be of means in a different you know place than they are now. And there have been many, many, many clients of mine that, you know, uh, reached out to me years prior and it didn't work out for us, whatever the reason is, either financially or the booking, the, the date was a conflict. And because of the way I, I, I conducted myself, you know, when the time was right, they did end up booking me years later. So this is a a tip to young artists that um, you're in a business that your personality really, really, really will either come back to haunt you or um, or reward you. So it's, it's an important thing to keep in mind. Okay, interesting. And to that point, is there ever a time when you'll say, you know what, I'm going to waive my fee and I'm doing this for the cause? Because I'll just give you a background for women in the industry. That's a norm. Requesting women to perform mm -hmm. because it's a mitzvah, because it's a fundraiser, because it's bikur cholam, because et cetera, et cetera. That's the norm. Like women saying I charge is a novelty. We're trying to change that as as part of one of the missions for this podcast. Um, but is there a time that you do perform for free for a cause? And what goes into that? This is an This is a... This is a, an eternal struggle. Um, this is something that will forever, and th this will never change completely. Um, not the point of, you know, the women's music world versus the men's music world, but the fact that I, I get requests on a daily basis, multiple times a day, to perform for free. I oftentimes do perform for free, though I reserve those times for intimate settings, such as hospital visits, um, a special needs boy who's having a bar mitzvah, a girl who just lost her, you know, parent and is getting married two days after Shiva, um, as opposed to a, an advertised event, you will never see me perform at an advertised event, um, pro bono for a, a vast multitude of reasons. And the one thing I will say is that when you do an event for free, they likely will not um, take care of you the way they would or value you the way they would if they were paying you. Um, when someone's paying for something, they want to get their money's worth. And in the performance world, getting their money's worth is giving you a chance to shine and giving you the opportunity to shine. I made this mistake once in my career. Um, about six years ago at a dinner 
very high profile dinner um, that ultimately now I look back and you see that they're raising, you know, they raised one and a half million dollars that night. And you'd like to believe that part of the reason that they raised that money is because they had entertainment. You will never, ever find um, a dinner. They'd never come to a caterer and say, we're putting on an event for a great cause. Um, would you consider catering for free? It doesn't exist. It never would happen. You have to look at your business the same way. They're having a caterer there to bring people in because you can't have an event without food. You can't have an event without entertainment, whatever that entertainment may be. It could be a speaker. It could be a musical you know, performance. And you have to look at your business the same way. Um, very oftentimes, I'll get calls for such a thing. I would say, I'm happy to write out a check. You know, give tzedakah to the cause, but this is my business, um, and I keep them separate. Again, I get calls nonstop all the time for hospital visits, things like that, and I'm very open to such things. I've had some of the most incredible experiences in my life singing for, you know, people in situations that uh, music lifted them up. That's really beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. I'd like to transition into a topic that's very often discussed with women in the arts, uh, modesty and different standards and norms in communities and that really directing your musical direction. So I'm sure this affects the mainstream industry as well because there are certain songs or sounds you wouldn't want to associate yourself with or there's this certain wedding music, the chasna music, and you wouldn't want to get music on your album that doesn't represent those kinds of styles that the Jewish community is very comfortable with. So this is an assumption. If I am wrong, okay. call me out on it. But <laughs> Sure. So Tznias, modesty, is a, is a state of mind. It's a set of guidelines that are community-based, right? We know very much that every community has their norm, their standard, um, which presents itself with a very difficult dilemma. How do you decide what your comfort level will be, your, your norm will be? It's a very difficult question. It's a very difficult uh, position to be in. Um, and ultimately, most people just you know, err on the side of caution so that way they don't offend anyone. Um, what you have to remember is that the music of the Beis HaMikdash, the music in the first and second temple, was influenced and directly, you know, conceived by influences from the Mesopotamian, you know, region, the, the areas around the Beis HaMikdash. It was inspired very, very much by the music that was considered the top 40s then. Um, if you don't believe me, there's many great sources for this, and I'm happy to share them. Fast forward throughout the generations, and you can directly link the music of the time with the music of the shul. You know, there's the, the tunes for Kal Nidre, the tunes for Echila Lakel, the tunes for other parts of davening are very similar. There are plenty of musicologists that, that go into these details. That being said, um, today's, you know, secular music um, happens to be right now. We're at a very good place. Um, music is very positive. It's very you know, empowering for the most part, especially 
you look a lot of um, the music is musicals are, are becoming a little more mainstream and they would never uh, you know offend anyone because uh, the musicals and those type of um, genres are very family friendly um, but ultimately the music around us is what does drive Jewish music it always has for for thousands of years the job as, a, as an artist is just keeping it within the realm of not offending anyone or not offending anyone in your target demographic, which um, has to be an ongoing, um, you know, discovery. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an evolution. Um, but for me, I will always take a little bit more of a conservative approach to my music while maintaining a very current feel. So the sounds of the songs will sound comparable to some of the music in the secular world in terms of quality and production level. But let's say the performance on stage will not reflect necessarily the, my, my physical moves won't reflect that of, uh, you know, anything um, around us that you would maybe not want your kids to see. Um, different communities, I will uh, adapt a little bit. Look, I live in Tom's River, which is neighboring Lakewood. Um, and for the, you know, for the most part, you will almost never see me perform in Lakewood, um, by design. I just, you know, don't necessarily want my kids or the, the community to have this. I, I, I'd like to separate myself from the pressures of, um, the community that I chose to live in and not have to, you know, worry about, uh, the public image every time I go to a grocery store. So. That's uh, everyone has to find their comfort level and their balance and work with that. That's a very broad and detailed at the same time. A lot of ambiguity here. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. I, I don't think it's everyone has to. I, I think it's not fair to artists. Um, I'm, I'm not talking to myself. I'm, I'm saying to the broad term artist to give a, a specific answer because every, everyone, and, and ultimately this will change as your musical career goes on. You know, uh, like, you know, I find myself performing at events where I'm the only religious Jew in the audience. Now you have this dilemma. Do I try to impress them and show them my knowledge of, of uh, you know, Broadway tunes, or do I show them, look how beautiful religious music could be? Yeah, absolutely. And do you still do chazanas now, cantorial work? Uh, very, very little. I do daven for the Ahmed a lot, chazan Roshaniyam Kippur, and about twice a month, you know, around the world. Um, I don't take more than two weekends a year around, you know, performing-wise, but they're very, um, they're not really chazanas. They're, you know, baltfila. And... How does this affect your family life? I know you made this decision together, which is beautiful. You have to say no to gigs because of family. So it's more about making the the gigs that you have work as opposed to saying no. So, for example, Pesach. I'm away usually just one half of Pesach. The way Pesach falls out this year, I have to be away the whole Pesach with my family, obviously. Um, I'm traveling or stuff like that. I'm flying around to other cities and leaving my wife and kids alone in a hotel. I was able to bring along a family 
um, that my kids are friends with, my wife is friends with his wife, and he's in the music business as well. And they're, everyone's happy now. You know, the whole Yontif is going to be a, a party for everyone. And I know that I don't have to have that guilty feeling of leaving everyone. It's worth just sometimes taking the extra effort to make sure that everyone's happy and comfortable. Okay, so I might be putting you on the spot or not, yeah. and feel free to take it sure. however you'd like. As one of my avenues of trying to branch out, I reach out to male singers, including you, to pitch songs that I write. You are on the receiving end. What does that look like for you? What are you looking for? And what is the arrangement in general, the financial slash licensing arrangement you have? The traditional you know, protocol was that um, a singer purchases songs from, from a songwriter. Um, the price, the, the ranges based on the experience of the songwriter, that was what the market determines. Um, some songwriters that I've dealt with in the past will go, look, if you want my song, I'm charging X amount, whether you like it or not, like the amount that I'm charging, this is what I'm charging. It's similar to the way I price myself in the business. I have a price that I have. I don't negotiate. Um, because there's a very finite amount of people doing what we do, um, as a singer the songwriting today a lot of songs are very lyrical so there are sing songwriters that will charge let's say twelve hundred dollars for the song and five hundred dollars for the lyrics um if you don't want to use the lyrics you don't have to and they'll only charge for the song this last album that i put out the call Kavod album um eight out of eleven of the songs i wrote the outline of the song the concept the lyrics and the basic uh tune and then i handed it over to professional songwriters to turn it into a final product, you know, let them do what they do best. Um, but again, they all quoted me their price for the regular songs and I happily paid that amount, even though, you know, the song was conceived by, you know, me, the idea was mine, the concept was mine, but a, a great idea with a bad execution is a bad overall product. So, um, that was, uh, that's, that's the way I, I guess I would answer that question. So do you accept cold pitches or warm pitches? All the time. Um, it's, it's a part of my life. I listen to about 500 songs a year that were just sent to an inbox. I have an email address, simcha at simchaliner.com that anyone's welcome to send to. And every single email will be addressed. Every demo will be listened to. How many of them are used? How many of them have made it onto my album? <laughs> yes. I had four albums that I've put out. I'd say about a total of 15 songs made it onto albums from those cold bitches. One of them is Piskili, which is one of my, the biggest songs I've ever recorded. So you never know. But, How do you know it's the right song? Um, it's hard to answer that. It's really, really hard to answer that. Um, the combination of the lyrics with the memorable aspect of the tune um, I listen to every song twice, so if by the end of the second song I can identify the hook in the song, or today the hooks in the songs, because most songs today um, have multiple hooks, then I will, uh, you know, put a star next to it. We uh, we flag it if there's something on there that, uh, um, you know, sticks out at me, and then I come back to it uh, later, and eventually... It's a, it's a pretty easy decision. Do you have any mission projects where you're 
helping other artists break break into the industry. Um, I'd like to hear some less finance talk from you (laughs) and more passion. Of course. And we'll close up with that. Um, So anyone that's been following, you know, along with my career, um, Instagram is obviously the best way to uh, really get a good look at, you know, what's going on. Um, Last year, I did a anti-bullying project where I traveled the country and had a thousand boys join me on a project to sing um, a song to stand up against bullying, which was incredibly, incredibly successful, not on a financial level, absolutely not on a financial level, but um, I received hundreds of emails from kids and their parents. Um, We set up a, a website with resources for kids that are going through bullying, um, this was a, an unbelievably fulfilling project. Um, a ton of the music that I put out, especially if you're following me on Instagram, because and, and I'm, I'm stressing that because there's a lot of these little side projects that I release on Instagram that are like just spur of the moment, uh, you know, I guess like little peaks into my brain. Um, acapella projects during the three weeks in Sphera, covers that I just sat down by the piano and did, these type of projects, the little comedy bits that I'm, pretty well known for at this point um and it's just uh it's it's a part of my life you know if i won the lottery tomorrow i would absolutely still be doing this so it's a it's a passion it's my life it's who i am it's what i do um and uh no one can take that away from you so you know i I tell people often in the music business that the most to me one of the most incredible parts of it is that after 120 if i make it that long I'm leaving behind something forever. There's a library of music, of songs, of talks, of podcasts, of interviews, just a, a library of stuff that will, will hopefully be around forever and that people can you know, discover the first time they heard Ribono or Kalbrahma or Kalakavod. It's, it's, it's that experience, that moment that people will hopefully be, be able to have forever. And you know, not a lot of industries can people say that. Um, so uh, keep doing what what you're doing. That's what I tell anyone in, in in the business because you never know who's you know opening Spotify and discovering your music for the first time. And, you know you never know what they can do. I'll, I'll end with a story. Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, who's the rabbi in Boca Raton Synagogue, sent me a text, and I posted a screenshot of this text on Instagram. So if anyone doubts, you know the <laughs> that there was a he's on the Besdin in South Florida. You know the the Jewish um, courts. Um, And there was a girl who came in for conversion to Judaism. She was going through Gerus. And one of the final questions that they ask in the conversion process is, what was the moment of inspiration for you? And she said that she was walking through Hollywood, Florida one Saturday afternoon, and she passed a synagogue And she was curious, so she went in. And that Shabbos, I was the guest chazan in the Young Israel of Hollywood. And she spent uh, two hours in shul crying, and after that decided to become a ger. So, and I I had no idea of this story until after she became, you know, Jewish. She converted to Judaism. And it was like a real wake-up call. It was like one of those, you know, you really, really don't know who and what you're going to influence so just, you know, it, it should be a motivation. If it's not a motivation, at least let it be a, uh, 
um, a warning, I guess, to the power of what we do and the power of what we're capable of. Right. That's a beautiful story and it's very true. And I just want to tell you uh, regarding your impact and I congratulations on your new album and when this project with the children all over the country or the world where you had them involved. I remember seeing that video and a few people reached out. We were talking about it and there was this there was this feeling of those are little kids. There's no issue of having girls included in that. I know we spoke a little bit about that, mm -hmm. but you are in a position of influence and impact and you're not just impacting boys and Jewish men. You're also impacting Jewish future mothers and Jewish girls sure. and having, and I don't know if you've considered it or not, that they're also half of your market, having them be included, especially on a children's level where it's more accepted. Yeah. So I'm going to interrupt you here for a second. Th this project was actually, we were running a side by side. They were supposed to be released at the same time, a girl's version and a boy's version, because we didn't want to limit the ages. That's the, the reason that this was a, I was working with a couple of major Jewish organizations to, um, you know, set up this project. And one of the reasons that we decided to do it boys only was that we didn't have to worry about limiting ages. You know, that way the girls version can have high school girls and little girls and the boys version could have high school boys, which we have high school boys in there um, and not have to worry about any of these, you know, again, we were discussing, you know, offending some of your, um, the, the girls version was started um, and it didn't uh, it didn't pan out at the same time because I could it, what people don't realize is that in the boys version I went into the schools myself and recorded these boys every single boy that you see in there I brought a mobile studio to and recorded with the girls there would have had to be someone in every school taking care of it and we started it and we got well underway and then it uh, there was just too there were too many people involved um, I'm putting this message out there to people that we're well underway in the girls project. If someone would like to spearhead it and take it up, you know, we can get this done. And I would love that because so much time and effort was put into it already to get it finished would be an unbelievable um, result. I think finishing up the girls project is an amazing idea. I also think having in mind some way to figure out how to include women in the regular projects because the separate women projects will get a lot less exposure as opposed to something that if you have little girls, even if you had to limit, but at least you have girl faces in your videos and you're fighting the women faces being erased right. out of the Jewish society. So I'll, I'll point out that we, um, I shot a music video yesterday, one of three for the latest album. So we shot the video for the song L'Cha um, and there are girls in the video. Um, that's number one. Number two, I could not do what I do without some very important women in my life. My wife's involvement in the projects are not limited to being home with the kids as, as stereotypical norms would suggest, but rather she has a very strong production, um, you know, involvement in, in the albums, um, as well as there are a very large amount of women involved in recording the, the album. Um, a huge amount of the musicians on this album are women. Um, two of the songwriters could open their eyes to the involvement of women in the mainstream Jewish music world and be pleasantly surprised. Um, obviously, in the from world, the uh, our, our families are larger. You know, it's a little bit more difficult than you know, let's say in the typical 
music world where you'll just have a, a, a single girl, you know, running her, her music career that doesn't exist as much in the firm world, um, just because we do live defined by certain, you know, stereotypes or roles and people like you who are excelling in the, you know, in the, in the music world are considered outliers, um, which it doesn't have to be that way, but, and it shouldn't be that way necessarily, but there are so many talented women, you know, Ruchi Torgo, Mary Mizraeli, these are people that I cannot do what I do without their involvement in my music. Um, and I look forward to and welcome many, many more from, you know, women's involvement in my music. And uh, I'm sure it will continue to, uh, to expand into that market. Thank you so much, Samcha, for coming on the show. This has been so nice. As you said, that you do respond to every pitch personally, which I can attest to, that you do do that. And I just thought I'd get special treatment because you were in my father-in-law's year, but it seems like everyone is treated equally, which is really beautiful. Um, And I cannot say that for others in the industry. So thank you so much for taking out the time and opening up, sharing, and being a little vulnerable with us and taking criticism from me. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Simcheliner for coming onto the show. We are so honored by your presence here. And to you, dear listener, I am so happy you keep coming back. Or if this was your first time, I hope you enjoy this podcast. If so, please subscribe to the show and leave us a review. And if you would like to be featured on the show or you have suggestions and ideas, we love hearing from you. Stay tuned for the new music video release that will be coming out this month in December in closer to Hanukkah. Don't forget to check back in with us next week for our next interview. Have a great week. This is your moment. Your moment to move forward and make progress. It's time to see where an education can take you. For over 130 years, Strayer University has been at the forefront of change. Offering programs that help students like you get ahead and stay ahead. So you can keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chef.